gave me pertaining to the young people that he is bringing in. Um, for years, uh, before we pastored, and when I was a young mom of four girls, and, you know, I was involved with church ministry still and other things and, and busy, and I would have a recurring nightmare, and it was the, the nightmare, and it happened over and over again, was I had this baby girl that I had somehow lost and forgotten about and found a few days later and realized I had not fed her. And I was terrified that she had starved to death in my, in, in my negligence. And I always knew when I had that dream that God was warning me, do not get too busy for your family. Your husband and your children come first. First before the ministry. Look, it goes like this. Let's just get this straight in case you don't know. God first. Your family is your ministry, and then the ministry is after that. God gave you your family as your priority ministry. Minister to your family first, and then others will see that, and then they will be more receptive to your ministry to them. And so that was always a warning dream to me. But when I say God first, that's not ministry. That's your relationship with God. That's your, that's your time with God. That's what has to come first. Yes, before family. Because if you get that first, you will be an effective minister to your family. So oddly enough, those dreams eventually stopped. My kids grew up, thank the Lord, and they could feed themselves. And then I, Dave and I became pastors of a church, and it was so strange. The dream changed to a baby boy. And it was the same dream, but it was a, every single time. It was no longer a girl. It was a boy. And this baby boy was like a prodigy. He could talk. It was like this baby that could talk. But it was, I, I was neglecting him. And, it, it, and I knew from the very first dream that that, that one was about the church. This was a, a, a new set of people to care for. And I knew every time that God was warning me, don't get too busy doing the work of the ministry to neglect the people. And that I knew exactly what that meant. So <clears throat> it's been a while since I've had that dream, but I had it last week. And so in this dream, there was a little toddler, a little boy who had just learned to walk. And he had this idea that he was going to climb up this vertical wall, wall face of this tall, steep, some kind of edifice. And he started to climb and he was determined to reach the top. And I was watching in the dream and I was absolutely terrified. And I thought for sure this baby boy was going to fall to his death trying to do the impossible, right? And somehow in the dream, I knew that I was not allowed to help him in the sense of not allowed to be there every single second and hold him. He had to do it himself. And right before I woke up, he was at the top of this tall ledge, probably like a thousand feet high, I don't know. And he had his little leg hoisted over the top and was just about to climb to finally get over the top. And I was holding my breath. And I woke up, and somehow I knew that he had made it, and I woke up with the awareness that he did it, and he did it with God. And so immediately when I woke up, the verse from Jude, I believe it's verse 24, Jude 24, I think it says, 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. And so my word for all of you today, and especially you young people, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You might not always feel like it. You might feel for sure that you're about to fall and give up, but you are going to make it. I feel like God spoke that as a prophetic word. He is able to keep you from falling, and he's finally going to present you faultless before his throne someday. So it was an encouragement to me to trust him. He's well capable of taking care of those in our care because they're ultimately in his care. Title of my sermon today, I have a standalone sermon today. We'll get to Genesis when we get to it, when we get back to it. But uh, I just, uh, God put this on my heart today, especially because it's the month of November. And November since 1996 has been designated as the Inter International Day of Prayer happens in November. And it is important that we take time each year to remember and pray for persecuted Christians all around the world. Uh, there's this idea that is preached in some churches, and, and it, it goes like this, and it's a false gospel. And it goes like this. If you come to Jesus, everything's going to be roses from then on, right? Life is going to be a bed of roses. He's going he's gonna to fix everything for you instantly, and you're always going to have everything you need. You're going to be blessed, blessed, hashtag blessed, and not stressed, And it's not true. In fact, in fact, sometimes things get a lot worse. I mean, you're paying the price. It's costly to follow Jesus. And so I want to ask you today, and the question, which is the title of the sermon, is, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? I've mentioned um, this story before, briefly, but I, I'm going to go back to it because it's one of my favorite stories. It's a true story of Daniel Nairi. Um, Daniel Nairi, he was raised in Iran, very wealthy home. His father was a dentist. His mother was a doctor. Um, and they had a very, very elaborate house in Iran. He describes it as just like these glass glass bedroom looking out into a garden full of birds and and he just was raised with wealth and his his mother was a sayed a, a descendant of royalty she she was actually in the bloodline of the prophet muhammad and so what happened was her sister that is daniel's aunt became a Christian and lived, started living in England in exile. And so at one point when Daniel and his sister were young, he, they and their mother went to a wedding in England to visit his aunt and found out that she had become a Christian by a miracle. God, Jesus had appeared to her, and that is probably most often how people in Iran and restricted countries who don't have access to the Bible or to church or to the gospel, Jesus, he's, he wants everyone. So he'll just show up, you know, he'll do whatever, it, he'll show up in whatever way they can meet him. So his aunt had become a Christian, so his mother decided to convert. She became a Christian because she could see the difference that Jesus made in her sister's life. 
But you see, in Iran, um, uh, it is a capital crime to convert to Christianity or Judaism, punishable by death. You go to religious court, and if you are found guilty of conversion, it is a crime punishable by death. So they kidnapped and threatened Daniel's mother. This is a true story. Um, and they kept her for a week and held her hostage and ordered her to betray those in her underground Christian church that she had joined. They gave her one week to do so. She refused and took her two children, left her husband, who refused to go with them. He refused to go with them. He did not convert. She left her husband, left her beautiful home and her career as a doctor in Iran, and fled, spent some time in a refugee camp, these cement buildings in, in Dubai, and then in, in Italy especially was a refugee camp, finally came here and, and uh, gained asylum act, um, status and lived in Oklahoma. I think this happened in the early 90s or late 80s. I forget, forget the time frame. And so this mother, this young mother and these two kids went from royalty and wealth, extreme wealth, and a life of ease in Iran to living now in Oklahoma in the housing projects, working a very low-paying job. I believe she was a janitor or something like that because the United States didn't recognize her license as a doctor. And he was picked on and bullied in school, you know, because he was different. He looked different, he spoke different, he talked differently. They left that life and entered a life of American poverty and hardship. But it was worth it. I mean, to answer that question, you would have to ask people who made such a dramatic change in their lifestyle to follow Jesus. They're the ones you would have to ask, and you would really, really, if you really want to know, ask them now on the other side of heaven, was it worth it? Ask them now in, in countries where, where they are beaten and imprisoned, in Nigeria where churches are burned down on a regular basis. Every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Every month, every month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. Every month, 772 acts of violence are committed against Christians. Over 200 million Christians are facing persecution on a regular basis. The United States Department of the, the United uh, States uh, Department of State has identified 60 different countries. 60 where Christians face persecution from their neighbors or from their government simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions, many of whom are Christians. You know, when I was at the piano a few minutes ago, um, I asked a question. I said, let's, or I said, I made a statement, let's sing it like we mean it. And I could have said, hey, let's, let's worship God today as though we're in a, at a, ba a baseball game and our favorite team is winning. But you know, I'm not into sports, so that might not have made a difference for me at all. <laughs> but I really could have said, let's worship God like the Christians in Iran do had to watch her father fall to his death while climbing on a church roof to rescue the cross that the Chinese police were coming to take from the roof of the church. 
She stayed in our house for a week recently, and it was like the Ark of the Covenant had entered our home. <laughs> she, there's, there was absolutely no, no inhibition. Just, she just worshiped with total abandon. She would just sit in my kitchen in the rocking chair there and just tears streaming down her face for two hours every morning. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. She's probably, she, I don't know when she's ever going to see her mother again or her siblings. I don't know when she's ever going to see them again. She can't go back to China. She's marked. And she's praising, pouring out her praise to God with everything in her, everything in her. I think those are the people you have to ask, is it worth it to follow Jesus? So I want to go to, um, uh, where is it? Luke 9. Uh, Mark 10, I'm sorry, Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17. This is commonly known as the rich young ruler. It's not a parable. It actually happened. Mark 10, verse 17, it says, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, running, and knelt before him. I just want to not rush through this passage. Just take note of every phrase and the meaning of every phrase. This guy comes running to Jesus. He thinks he wants to become a Christian. He's running to Jesus. He thinks he's desperate for change. He thinks, this is what I need. This is what I've been looking for. And that's why he's running. And then he kneels before Jesus. This guy is showing the world that he is willing to put public opinion aside and do something publicly and kneel before Jesus and show himself and everyone watching that he is ready to worship this God who's been performing all these miracles. He's running and he's kneeling. Anybody who runs and kneels before Jesus, we can say that at the very least, they think they want him. They think they want him. Wouldn't you say so? Certainly everyone watching would assume they really want Jesus in their life. He comes running and he kneels before him and he asks him, good teacher, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. In other words, what do I got to do? I want to be saved. I want to become a Christian. What do I have to do? He calls him good teacher, and Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, people twist that verse, especially people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and groups that don't believe Jesus is God. They say, see there, there's that one singular verse and Jesus is saying, only God is good. But actually, this is a rhetorical question. It's the opposite. Jesus is using this to drive home the entire point that he is God. He's saying, hey, you just admitted that I'm God because you called me good, and only one is good, and that's God. So he asks a rhetorical question to point out to the man that he is God. And then he goes on to answer his question. And this is what he says in Mark 10, 19. He says, young man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, don't cheat people, okay? Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder, don't cheat on other people. 
honor your father and mother. He's basically quoting the Ten Commandments. This is a good Jewish young man. He knows the law. He's grown up with the Ten Commandments. So he answers in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. It's interesting. Here is a religious person who keeps all the Ten Commandments. And he still knows that there's something there in this Jesus that he desperately needs. He has figured out on his own that going to church and doing all the good stuff and always being good and never messing up didn't matter. That's why we can't compare our life to other people. We cannot compare our goodness or our badness with others and assume that God wants this person more than me. No, this guy was, he was stellar. He was squeaky clean. Squeaky clean. And he's running and kneeling to Jesus and saying, what do I have to do to be saved? A real good church-going guy. What do I have to do to be saved? Hey, I've done all this stuff. See, Jesus was intentionally showing him the contrast between religious duty and a, merit, a religious system that's based on merit and having a heart that is absolutely sold out to God. Like our sister spoke to us about, it's a daily sacrifice, everything, giving everything to him. So Jesus knew what he was going to say. He says, from a young boy, I've been doing all this stuff. Been real good. Verse 21, then Jesus and I love this. Looking at him, loved him. We need to take note because Jesus knows what's going to happen next. He knows this young man's heart. He knows what's actually in his heart beneath the religious facade, beneath all the attaboys, beneath the goody two-shoes, beneath the good guy, the nice guy. The squeaky clean Jesus knows what's in his heart, and it says he looked at him, and he loved him. He loved him. He loved him. Nobody, good or bad, rich or poor, nobody can escape the look of love in God's eyes. He loves you. He loves you. He looked at him, and he loved him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say that to anyone else. He doesn't say that to everybody. He doesn't. He knew that greed and money was this guy's issue. Money was this guy's God. That's the idol he was serving. That's why Jesus said it to him. He said, if you really want to follow me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then, not only that, because then you'll just be a, uh, you know, a, a good person, a good moral person. You'll be a great humanitarian. You can, do, you can be an atheist and do that. You can sell everything. You can give every dime you have to the poor and be a straight-up atheist, hating God. That's why Jesus didn't stop there. He said, and then, take up your cross. Whatever cross you have to bear, just be willing to carry it and follow me. And it says... The guy was sad. 
verse 22. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Possessions he didn't want to give up. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? He didn't think it was worth it. So the disciples are listening to this. And Peter says in verse 28, let's go down to 28. You just picture you're right there and you see this whole thing happening as the disciples were. Peter hears this whole thing. He has given everything up. He's left his wife, his home. He's left the fishing boat. He's left his career. He has done that. He's listening to this. It's like, man, I'm, I'm not. He's starting to wonder. Like, is it really worth it? <laughs> Maybe that's what's going through his mind because he says, verse 28, he says, see, we've left all and followed you. I wonder if implicit in that statement by Peter is, tell us it's worth it, Jesus. Because we did that. What you just told him to do, we've already done that. Man, it hurts. We've lost some things. It's hard. But we did it. And Jesus knows Peter's heart. And he knows his heart, and he says this to Peter. Verse 29, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands. So there, there it is. He's two categories. He's naming things that people have to leave. Relationships with those who you hold most dear and lands. That's your possessions, your place. Jesus says, there is no one who has left all of that for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. That means a hundred times more. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. He's talking about the spiritual family God places you in when you choose to follow him. And the place he puts you in, this place of belonging, with persecutions. Man, I wish that wasn't there. Like it should say, why couldn't he say with blessings? <laughs> he says, no, with persecutions. There's no one who shall not receive a hundredfold. Notice Jesus says, now in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying, Peter, I hear you. I hear what you're asking me, and I'm telling you right now, there is nobody who hasn't left it all who will not receive a hundred times more, not just in the sweet by and by, but in this life, now in this life, and in the age to come. When Luke, I believe it's when Luke tells this story, in one of the other Gospels, I think it's Luke, when he tells this story, he remembered that Jesus actually said to the man, the young man, he said, take up your cross and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And that's it. Maybe the young man thought treasure in heaven. Well, what's treasure and what's heaven? I don't know. And I don't care. It doesn't sound interesting. I got money. 
I got stuff to do right now. I got my treasure. I don't know if I could, if it's worth it to trade in the treasure I have now with whatever treasure you're talking about. And in heaven, what's that? Where's that? When is that? And it says, then the guy walked away sorrowful for he had many possessions. So then Peter says, yeah, well, you see what he just did, Jesus? Yeah. Tell us, is it worth it? Why does Jesus take the time to answer Peter's question? And he never pointed out to the young man what he said to Peter and the other disciples. I promise you, you will receive a hundred times more now in this life and in the life to come. Why didn't he tell the young guy that? Like riches, eternal riches begins right now. Couldn't you have convinced him a little more? I mean, if I would have been there, I would have been, I would have been, I would have said to the guy as he's walking away sorrowful, hey, wait, like you got to listen to him. Like it, it really is worth it. Jesus doesn't say anymore. He lets him walk away. And then he tells the rest of them the whole bit of it. Yeah, it's really worth it. I think it's because Jesus knew what was in the young man's heart. He just knew. He could have sat there for hours with that young man, pleading with him and telling him till he was blue in the face, man, it's worth it. It's worth it. It is worth it. You will have treasure in heaven and right now. You're going to have a peace of mind that you've never known before. You are going to experience joy when you didn't think joy was possible. In your darkest season of your life, you're going to find me. You're going to find a stability that you never had before. You're going to enter into a life of giving and serving that will fulfill you that will energize you. You're going to enter into a presence of God in your life that will be so satisfying that it makes every penny and every gold coin you have like mud. He could have told him all of that. And somehow Jesus knew what mattered. Because Jesus knew his heart. He knew that his heart was set on his riches. And he knew in that young man's heart, to him, it wasn't worth it. And he also knew Peter's heart. And he knew the heart of those sitting around listening, listening to Peter's question. He knew their heart, and he said, I promise you, there's not anyone who hasn't given up everything you've had to give up to follow me, who shall not receive 100-fold in this life and in the life to come. I first heard this passage preached by, I believe his name is Pastor Toby Cook at Horseheads Baptist Church. I think that's his name. It blew me away because, I, I, you know, I, I said this to my family recently. I remind them every now and then. I'm a frustrated writer. If you create, if you're any kind of an artist and you create and you can't do it because you're busy doing, doing other things and you just, you can't do your thing, that, it's, it's frustrating and you can feel like, man, I'm going to die and never get to do the thing, right? And he spoke from this passage, and he spoke about eternity and how heaven is not just some mystical, spooky, weird, gray, misty place where we're going to be eating grapes and strumming harps on a cloud for millennia. It's a place that's more real than anything that you can see here. 
We will be working and it'll be busy, but a good busy, not an exhausting busy, an energizing, fulfilling busy. And the thing that you were created to be and to do, you will fulfill in all of eternity. A hundredfold, a hundredfold. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? You'd have to ask all the believers worldwide who suffer intensely for their faith and never give up and never quit, who go to their death saying it has been worth it and it is worth it and it will be worth it still. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief does not come, that is Satan. He does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, more abundantly. In the face of everything you have to give up to follow Jesus, he has still come to give you life even more abundantly. It's a, it's a joy and a peace and a comfort that is available to us every single day. But we've got to do more than that young man did. We have to do more than run and kneel before Jesus. We have to say, okay, okay, this hurts what I have to give up to follow you. It hurts. And it's inconvenient and hard and exhausting and lonely. But it's worth it. And if you will say that in your heart, you will find every single day that serving Jesus is so worth it. It's so worth it. There is a presence that you can have with you every single minute of every hour in your darkest hours. It's worth it. There's a reason why millions of Christians all over the world refuse to give up their faith in the face of death because it's worth it. In Revelation 21, verse 4, I'm going to close with this verse and then we're going to go to communion. In Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. No more physical pain, no more mental pain, no more emotional pain, no more psychological pain, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, that's John the Beloved writing this vision he saw, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things.
that baby boy in that dream, who finally reached the top and swung his little leg over the edge without anybody help, anybody's help except God's. It was worth it. It was worth the climb. It was worth the climb. It was worth every strain, every reach, every grasp. It was worth it. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. There's an inheritance for us that doesn't pass away, that lasts forever. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but I figure if there's an inheritance straight from God that he has for me, it's probably worth receiving. We're going to receive communion. I'm going to ask the band to come up because I'd like to close with that song again today, um, The More I Seek Him. As they're doing that, I would like to, uh, can I call on, Barry, could I call on you and, um, <laughs> okay, all right, Pastor Dave, David Larrabee, can I put you on the spot and ask you to 